From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Amanda Rooney, and I'll be your host for this week's episode. We went into the Terra Informa archives and found a piece by Chris Changian Phillips about the science of forest fires, which is very relevant if you're anywhere near the West Coast right now. Then we hear a piece by the podcast Science Faction as they explain all the surprising ways that spider silk can be used. And that's all coming up right after these headlines. Ever wonder what makes your pups smiley lick kisses and excited, full body wiggling so infallible every time you walk in the door? New research into the genetic basis for the friendliness of dogs may have revealed some clues. Compared to wolves, dogs are known to be hypersocial, a trait that sets them apart from many other animals and is one of the reasons they're one of our favorite creatures to hang out with. The study looked to humans to find clues to a potential genetic cause for this. By looking at the DNA of people with Williams-Burden syndrome, a developmental disorder that, among other things, enhances trust and friendliness. By comparing chromosomes of people affected by Williams-Burden syndrome with dog chromosomes, scientists were able to find several specific dog genes that show special variation that could be the root of this friendly nature and also help explain why some dogs are friendlier than others. Husky Energy is awaiting charges stemming from a major oil spill that happened in Saskatchewan about a year ago, when one of their pipelines leaked 225,000 liters of oil mixed with dilutant onto the riverbank near Maidstone, Saskatchewan, contaminating the water sources of three different cities. North Battleford, Prince Albert, and Melfort were all forced to shut off their water intakes for almost two months after the oil plume flowed downstream. The Ministry of Justice is reviewing the incident, deciding whether charges should be laid. The company could be facing fines of up to $1 million a day under the Environmental Protection Act and 50000 a day under the Pipelines Act in Saskatchewan. However, some environmentalists are concerned with whether the settlement will include important safety upgrades to Husky's pipeline system, since for large companies, even seemingly hefty fines can be more of a slap on the wrist than a call for action to change. Vietnam has pledged to rescue around 1,000 bears from Vietnamese farms, keeping them captive in order to extract and sell their bile. Bile, a liquid found in gallbladders to aid digestion, has a long history in traditional Asian medicine but there is no proof of its efficacy in treating many of the conditions it is sold to cure. The practice of extracting bile often results in inhumane treatment of the bears, with farms keeping often malnourished bears in small cages. The extraction itself is also very invasive, and there have been cases where bears were found to be constantly hooked up to a gallbladder catheter. The main targets for this practice are Asiatic black bears or moon bears, as well as sun bears, both of which are listed as vulnerable to extinction by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Although the bile extraction process was outlawed by Vietnamese authorities in 2005, loopholes and weak enforcement has hindered progress. On July 19th, the Administration of Forestry signed a Memorandum of Understanding with conservation nonprofit Animals Asia to remove the bears from bile farms to sanctuaries. (laughs) 
Have you ever wondered how fires change the forests they burn? Or how that might change now that fires are seemingly coming more often and getting more intense? Back in 2012, Terra Informa's Chris Changyan Phillips reached University of Saskatchewan ecologist Jill Johnstone in the Yukon to ask her about her research studying fire in the forests there. She explained how climate change is making fire a disruptor of boreal forests rather than a regenerator. Jill Johnstone has been traveling up to Yukon for about two decades now to study its boreal forests. She's such a pro at working in the field that her lab wrote its own field food cookbook. Her favorite dish? Ramen noodle surprise. Okay, and what's in there? Well, you start with ramen noodles, mm-hmm. and then usually a can of tuna fish, mm-hmm. some hot sauce, <laughs> some sort of dehydrated vegetables, and uh, yeah, you sort of make a soup, usually a little mozzarella cheese in there. There's a reason Jill Johnstone has become an expert at instant noodles, of course. She's there to figure out how fire affects different kinds of trees. Well, the typical way it works is that the trees are very well adapted, and the forest plants in general are very well adapted to fire. Fire is part of the reality of the landscape up here. And so normally a fire isn't actually something that changes the forest very much. It just resets the age structure. Which is a delicate way of saying it pretty much burns everything old in the forest and makes room for something new. Trees have lots of different strategies for taking advantage of that. I'm fascinated by the, the species that exhibit uh, what, what's called serotony, which is that the cones stay sealed closed, either for a period of years, like in black spruce, or for many decades, like in pine. And then when a fire comes through, it heats the wax that holds the cones closed, and then the seeds are released after the fire, hmm. which is a really good way of getting regenerated after a fire, but sometimes it doesn't work. So all those dense slopes and bogs of spruce trees you see up north might look ancient, but what you're seeing is actually just the latest generation since the last fire. Jill says that for fire to have this rejuvenating effect, it has to come at the right intervals. You can think of it like taking a shower. Once or twice a day will help you keep clean. Once a week and you'll probably start to stink. Five times a day and your skin and your hair might start to rebel. Yeah, so having serotonous cones is a great way to ensure that you can regenerate after a fire. If you have trees there before, they're holding these seed banks in the upper part of the canopy. Fire comes through, cones release the seeds, and then you have a bunch of seedlings. All works well. Uh, One of the things, however, that can disrupt that sort of stable cycle of conifer regeneration is a fire that occurs after too short of a time for the trees to actually be mature and to have developed those cone banks. Mm -hmm. And we found that closely timed fires, so these are fires that occur within two, three, even four decades of each other, they tend to completely destroy all the young trees that are present, and even if those young trees had some cones, those cones get burned up in the fire because they're too low to the ground, and then those conifers don't have that local source of seed, and we get what we call recruitment failures. A recruitment failure is exactly what it sounds like, just like when you don't get enough people out for cheerleading tryouts, if you don't have enough seedlings in there, you're out of luck. 
So what happens when fires start coming more often? It turns out the forest changes a lot. That cheerleading recruitment? Imagine the kids from the AV club were suddenly the only ones who showed up. Um, we've been monitoring some sites that where this has happened for three decades. And so far, what's happened is that, that species that are able to colonize from long distances take over from the serotonous conifers. And so in the most case, that ends up being trembling aspen. Because even though it's very well adapted to regenerating, it can also got these fluffy, windblown seeds that can travel for kilometers. And so that species typically seems to be able to come in after these uh, frequent fires. And then you get a switch from a conifer-dominated stand that may have been conifer-dominated for centuries is now switching to largely 100% or close to 100% deciduous-dominated. And so we think that those stands are actually going to stay deciduous-dominated until another fire comes along in a century or so. Unless you're really into trees, though, you're probably wondering, why does it matter whether a forest is full of aspens or spruce trees? Jill Johnstone says it might matter a lot, and not for the reasons you'd expect. And the reason that's important is conifer forests actually have really different habitat characteristics for wildlife. They support a different plant understory. And perhaps more important at a global level is they have really big feedbacks to the environment that are really different. So if you imagine a deciduous forest, in the winter it loses all its leaves. And mm -hmm. as a result, when, when energy is coming in from the atmosphere, it is largely reflected back out because what you get is a snow-covered landscape with very little dark tree biomass that absorbs energy. And you can compare that to a spruce forest where the trees stay dark. They hold on to their foliage through the winter. And so they actually can help warm the environment during the winter because of their dark surface. That's interesting. It's not uh, not intuitive, I guess. I think of like the way that um, heating will affect the thermocarst lakes up north, and that's like yep. a, a positive feedback loop, but this seems like something that might not have such an obvious... Yes, actually, that's one of the other really important things is that a shift in the composition of the boreal forest from conifer to deciduous could actually be one of the few feedbacks in the north that helps put a break on the runaway climate system because huh. uh, they have a lot of negative feedbacks to future warming. For example, deciduous forests grow a lot faster than uh, conifer forests, so they actually act as a stronger carbon sink. In the, in the few first few decades after fire. So they'll help remove carbon from the atmosphere. And also, they tend to be less flammable. They have, when, when they do burn, but when they burn, the fire travels less quickly through them than a conifer stand under the same fire weather conditions. And so it may be that actually more deciduous forests on the landscape could help slow down the percolation of fire through a landscape and actually have a negative impact on how frequent fire is in the future. And so we have, maybe this is a break or something that will slow down the rapid transformation of the boreal forest into something that we have a very hard time predicting with climate change. Hmm. Uh, thank you so much, Jill. I really appreciate you talking to us today. Sure.
Thanks to Chris Chang and Phillips for that piece. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have any questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at Terra Informa. And make sure to visit us at terrainforma.ca and subscribe to us on iTunes. Thanks to our contributors this week, Charlie Blay for headlines, Andrea Gallivan for picking those archives, and to Nat Quantar for updating our website. I have been your host, Amanda Rooney, and I hope to catch you next week on Terra Informa. Now we bring you a piece by the podcast Science Faction. They reveal the surprising uses of spider silk. Science Faction is a show about unbelievable discoveries. Science Faction! You're listening to Science Faction. It is raining spiders in Australia. Baby spiders are falling from the skies. The New South Wales town of Goulburn experienced an interesting weather pattern when millions of baby spiders took to the skies, jumping from trees and using their webs as parachutes. The town was invaded by the creepy crawlies as homes and gardens were reportedly covered with the spiders and mounds of their silky threads. Forget about raining cats and dogs. Earlier this year, millions of spiders seemingly rained down from the sky in southern Australia, covering the ground in a thick layer of white. Making it look almost like the thick of Canadian winter, but in the southern tablelands of Australia, in fall. It's not totally clear how and why this particular event happened, but one possible explanation for what are called ballooning events like this one is that spiders might be escaping huge rainfalls by building themselves a sort of hot air balloon that can lift them to higher and drier grounds. It's sort of like backwards skydiving. And it's thanks to the wonders of spider silk that they can build something that's strong enough to lift them off the ground and ride the wind to safety. Spider silk is so strong that it's now being used not only by spiders, but also by humans, and in many different, often weird ways. Stronger than most human-made materials, research shows that spider silk can be used to catch airplanes, stop trains, and block gunshots. Today on Science Faction, we're talking all about spider silk superpowers. Science Faction 101. We speak in the thousand most used words. The researchers we talk to don't. These thousand words come from... The Oscar Five Text Editor. Made by scientist... Theo Sanderson. <laughs> Theo Sanderson. We build on these accepted words using prefixes and suffixes. And we allow the use of numbers and names. From the names of people and places. To the names of life forms and scientific fields. We see these few little exceptions as key to bringing you stories factually and informatively. And now for the show... One more exception that we just can't get around in today's show is using the word silk. You know that whitish, strong, but soft material that comes straight out of spiders to make their spider webs? Yeah, that stuff. Silk. Well, that silk stuff is actually the second strongest biological material known, ever. 
you're wondering what's the first? We used to think it was spider silk until earlier in 2015, when researchers from Queen Mary University of London found out that the teeth of limpet snails, which are used to tear algae off of rocks, are actually way, way stronger. But it didn't take spider silk very long to catch up. Now, researchers from the University of Trento in Italy have found that spiders can make silk as strong as limpet teeth. But only when the spiders are first showered in water that has a special type of carbon in it can they really make this super silk. Three and a half times stronger than the real deal, this super silk could actually catch an airplane falling from the sky. And so, limpet teeth have met their match in strength, carbon spider silk. That's got to be what Spider-Man has coursing through his blood. You would think, right? But even if Spider-Man just had regular old silk shooting from his hands, it would actually be strong enough to do most of the incredible things that Spider-Man uses silk for. Like stopping a racing train from rushing off its tracks. And a group of researchers from Utah State University actually did Spider-Man science to prove that it's possible. There is a scene where Spider-Man stops a passenger train from crashing. So we found out how much a train locomotive weighs. We found out how much a passenger car weighs. We found out how much each of those, um, how many people were, you know, roughly how many people were in there. So this is how much weight the whole train weighed. Then if you look in the movie, there is a, a scene there where they show how fast it's going. So we were able to calculate how fast it was going. Um, that told us how much energy was being was generated there. Um, then we went back and looked and, and saw how many uh, lines that Spider-Man put out against the wall, um, roughly calculated how thick they were, um, and putting all those things together, we figured that um, he actually could stop the train and had about a 50% surplus in the amount of energy it was taken to break um, all of those um, fibers that he attached to the walls. So in real life, Spider-Man could actually save the day. But there is one catch. The only interesting caveat to that was is that we also calculated that he would have had to eaten about 80 pounds of steak a day to have created enough protein for him to do it. So there was that small problem that he could never eat enough protein to generate as much silk as he showed shooting out. This is Dr. Randy Lewis, a scientist on the leading edge of spider silk research. I am Randy Lewis. I am a U-Star professor of biology at Utah State University. For the last number of years, we have been studying spider silk, uh, spider silk proteins, and particularly how do we make quantities of this material to use for commercial purposes. Randy wants to make a lot of silk so his team can try out the many ways silk could be used by humans. Silk could replace a good number of our everyday materials and maybe even do a better job at it. The mechanical properties of spider silk are pretty amazing. The combination of both a very high strength and a very high flexibility and stretchability, they really provide the, the unique characteristics of spider silk. This super material can be used in a lot of ways as replacements for things like Kevlar and carbon fibers, some other kinds of plastics, sports clothing for parachute cords, for parachutes, sails, a lot of things other than fibers, thin films. For adhesives, we are stronger than a number of commercial glues. We can glue almost anything you can imagine together. We can do wood, we can do plastic, we can do Teflon, we can even do silicone um, and metals to glue together. Gels, we make uh, a very interesting sponge, coating detectors that people put down in wells. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. 
But to get enough silk to do all of these things, putting spiders to work is not our best bet. They have two serious personality defects. The first is, is that they are territorial. And the second is that they're cannibalistic. If you put two in a container, one will kill the other. Or they're actually crazier than that. They actually end up killing each other. Um, and you'll have two dead spiders and, and nothing to work with. Instead, what Randy does is he uses other, friendlier animals to make his silk. And he gives them the spider's ability to make silk. We cloned the first spider silk gene. Which they inserted into four different plants and animals. We currently have four options for producing the spider silk protein. First? Transgenic goats. Goats only produce the spider silk protein in the milk when the does uh, are lactating following giving birth. Second? E. coli, a standard sort of bacteria to use for these kinds of studies. We transferred the genes into bacteria. Third? We've also made transgenic silkworms. The silkworms produce a combination of our spider silk protein and their silkworm cocoon protein. And finally fourth, alfalfa, the plant. These four plants and animals each put out the material needed to make silk in their own way. We precipitate that out, um, we give it a good wash, then we freeze dry it. And that's really our starting material then for making fibers and films and gels um, and all of those sorts of things. Randy's team has managed to turn these animals part spider so they can make silk that's almost as good as the real deal. We actually match or exceed the elasticity of the natural spider silks, but we're only about half to at the best two-thirds as strong. This way, they get around the whole problem of spiders killing each other off and are able to make enough silk so they can try out the many new uses of spider silk. One of the most unforeseen uses of spider silk came to Randy from a very unexpected place. She, she, she contacted us completely out of the blue. Um, she kind of proposed the idea of bulletproof skin. This is she. I'm uh, Shalila Asadi. My profession is an artist, but I call myself a, a hybrid. I'm very uh, much interested by science and uh, nature. She lives and works in the Netherlands, where she is first and foremost an artist. But one of her favorite pastimes is to read up on scientific papers and discoveries. In 2005, I stumbled on Randy Lewis, his research with the spider goats, and got really fascinated about goats who carry the gene of the golden orc beaver to produce spider silk in the milk. One of the applications was for a bulletproof vest, but I thought, why even bother with bulletproof vests? What if we take it one step further? What if you created bulletproof human skin? For Shalila, reading Randy's paper reminded her of something she'd heard before about Genghis Khan's horsemen, who wore silk armor to keep anything that was shot their way from embedding in their skin. She wondered, could this be taken one step further? Could spider silk be put right into a person's skin to stop a gunshot? Our own human skin is the barrier between our inner world and the outer world, which is dangerous and full of harm. It's a story about our desire as a human, as a society, to be invulnerable, to be better, healthier, live longer. So Shalila reached out to Randy to see what he thought about her idea. We all kind of appreciated the novelty of the idea. He liked it, and they all ran with it. Randy and his team would take care of making the silk, and Shalila would see to getting it inside the skin. We collected the, uh, the cocoons, um, we unwrapped them, we got the silk all cleaned up so that it would be as biocompatible as possible. Um, we shipped it off to her, um, then she got it woven into, uh, into a fabric and they, uh, the group over there uh, in, in the Netherlands 
was able to get the skin to grow onto the surface, and then they did the ballistic testing. Shalila pulled together people from many different countries. I did not only work with Randy Lewis, we worked also with some scientists from the dermatology department from the Leiden University, and with the Forensic Genomic Consortium and the Dutch Forensic Ballistic Department. And we worked also with uh, some companies in Korea, China, and Germany to weave the spider silk. Once each of these groups did their part, the prototype of human spider skin was ready. And we shot at it with the .20 long rifle uh, caliber bullet. Shalila's idea worked. Human spider skin stopped a gunshot, firing half as fast as normal. Never before has human skin done this. And with a bit more work, it's likely that even the fastest gunshots could be stopped in their tracks, thanks to spider silk. So at the heart of it, this was Shalila's art. But it brought up a lot of important ideas and questions about the possible real-life uses of silk. As Shalila and Randy's work made headlines, they started getting interest from lots of different people. I got a lot of uh, applications uh, by mail from soldiers all over the world who offered themselves as, as a prototype to uh, test and improve human skin on. They also heard from people concerned about who gets the skin and how. People wanted to know. If the skin will also be available in black and if only the rich ones would get the skin. I think it's part of the work and I think it's important that we as society think about those questions and think it's not only with the bulletproof skin but also with other biotech materials and protocols. Uh, what is the implication for society, not, not only now but in the future? These are very important causes for concern, ones we need to think about and talk about. But whether or not this spider skin can actually save lives is a whole other question. Even if this new skin could one day fully stop a gunshot, the force of the shot is still there. And this alone could kill you. Your organs and your bones uh, would break anyways. Inescapably, with better skin, better gunshots would come too. You know, somebody's just going to make a better bullet. It's not an improvement because if, if you have a bulletproof skin, then someone else uh, will invent better bullets. It becomes an arms race, a struggle to build better, faster, and stronger arms than the next guy. Uh, we call it in Dutch Vaterwetloop. Because of this, it's unlikely that spider skin will take off in any serious way. You know, this is probably a good thing. After all, do we really want to be making unstoppable armies? Are we really okay with changing the human species? This raises a lot of questions. Do we need it? Uh, is it necessary to feel really safe? Nonetheless, a lot of good has come out of this work. Bulletproof skin uh, brought a lot of stories and a, and a lot of imagination for people and things to think of and talk about, but it has also led to innovation. From our perspective, the most amazing thing for us was the fact that you actually could grow human skin, full layer, all the layers, effectively on the, the silk fabric, which means that you know it, it really is very biocompatible. That list of spider silk uses that we presented at the start of this show just got longer. On top of its uses for outdoor activities and as a super material, spider silk can also be used in the field of medicine for things like... Artificial ligaments, tendons, bandages for burn victims. We're looking at coatings. We can put things like antibiotics and anti-clotting agents into those to coat medical devices. The gels we're looking at is as possible... Uh, drug delivery, our materials are very biocompatible, so that you could have muscle or, or something else grow it back in. So, in a sense, 
one day we could all become Spider-Men and Spider-Women. In earlier science fiction shows, we've often looked at how different scientific fields have come together to lead to unbelievable discoveries. But we don't often hear about this type of partnership between an artist and a scientist that leads to groundbreaking work. The last words of the day go to Shalila. I think we have one main goal, and that is to discover the world and try to understand the world. And a scientist and an artist, each on their own way, are curious beings and fascinated by all kinds of materials from nature. I'm producer Nick Schofield. Thanks for listening to episode 7 of Science Faction, Spider Silk Superpowers. Science Faction is Dalal Hanna and Andrea Reed with sounds and music made by Nick Schofield and is supported by Jeanne Valentin. Visit us online at sciencefaction.ca. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks again.